Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. No one left behind. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives. Here's your host, General David Grange. Uh, good evening, all veterans, uh, and also what I'd like to say a tribute to our POWs and MIAs. Tonight we're going to discuss POWs and MIAs in several wars and conflicts. And those guests that will be on our show tonight that were involved in their rescue, their recovery, or their knowledge of those attempts. World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and then one mission after that, Operation Eagle Claw. The concern and effort of U.S. Armed Forces is not to let anyone get captured. And if so, find, rescue, and or recover those GIs. We have many units and agencies focused on hostage rescue and recovery in our armed forces. Tonight, we'll cover some of those. So I think it's important to give a little bit of information on the background of the POW-MIA situation in the American Armed Forces. As an example, in World War II, we had over 130,000 POWs. 14,000 of those plus died in captivity. In Korea, almost 3,000 died in captivity. In Vietnam, 725 POWs, 64 which died in captivity. Since 1991, there's been 37 POWs, none of which are in captivity today. Reference Mission in Action, MIAs. Over 83,000 were MIAs in World War II Korea and Vietnam. What's interesting is over 75% fought in the Asia-Pacific theaters. There are several agencies that are involved in accounting for these MIAs. It's called the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency. We also recognize POWs and MIAs every third Friday, every September, called POW-MIA Recognition Day. Many of you that have served have been to dining ins or other military gatherings. Even several commercial companies honor our POWs and MIAs. And they do so when there's a dinner called a missing man table, sometimes referred to as the fallen comrade table. And it's normally a protocol that's followed almost exactly, but not always the same. The honor is what's important. But it's a round table which represents everlasting concern. It's a white cloth representing purity and those that answered the call to serve. There's an empty chair or two or three, which represents those POWs MIA. On the table sits the single red rose, which represents their loved ones who keep the faith. There's a yellow ribbon, which means uncertainty, hope, determination. There's a slice of lemon representing bitter faith. There's a pinch of salt, representing tears of missing and their families. There's a lighted candle, which reflects our hope to rescue POWs or find the missing in action. There's usually a Bible, which represents strength gained through faith and one nation under God. 
There's an inverted glass on the table, which is an inability to share a toast with one's comrades. There's a code of conduct that all armed forces GIs abide by. And it's very difficult if you really read the words in that code of conduct. And our military never really was serious about training in case one is a POW until after Vietnam. There's training required now, and the level of training depends on the type of organization or one's MOS, where they're likely to be captured in many of their missions. It's called SEER training, S-E-R-E, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. And those that are at highest of risk are required to attend a level C of that training. And at one of the later shows, we'll go into more detail on SEER training. It's something that is required to keep our people from becoming POWs, and if so, how to survive. So on the show tonight, we're going to start out with World War II, then go into Korea. A good example from Vietnam, which is the Sante Raid. And after that, we'll hit Eagle Claw with the Iranian hostage rescue situation. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. My father was the the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. At this late date, it's difficult to find a living World War II prisoner of war. But we were fortunate to come across a recording of an interview with a prisoner by the name of Clifton Street, who was captured during the Battle of the Bulge, a member of the 106th Division. He went into captivity until the end of the war and was rescued by forces under General Patton. 
He went on to a productive life and became a seventh-grade science and math teacher, and he influenced the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, of students. This showcases the value of veterans in the community, especially those that were prisoners of war. We have also an account of a student who went to school under him in the mid-50s. That man went on to become a successful attorney and gives a wonderful account of the effect of not only Mr. Street on him, but on classmates he still was in touch with. He's living today a very successful attorney. We think you'll find this compelling. I guess my best place to start, so it won't be too long, would be to tell you what happened, how we were picked up, and what happened after. We were all set in the Ardennes, ready for the Germans to come our way. And we had tin cans tied to the trees so that if they had come through, we could hear them rattle it. And we had grenades on the trees. So if we heard them coming or come our way, we could, all we had to do was pull a string and it would go. But things didn't work out quite the way we expected them to. The captain came up one day and told us, we were surrounded, that all our supplies were cut off. That meant no food, nothing else. And so he said, the only thing we can do is try to get back to Belgium. So will you do what the captain says? And we started back. And trying to head back there, we ran into the Hermann Goring Panzer Division. They knew we were coming that way, and they were just waiting for us. If you know the size of a Tiger tank, they made ours look like nothing at all. At first, with little M1 rifles, we were shooting at Tiger tanks, and that was no contest whatsoever. And after we had lost enough men, the captain put up a handkerchief and said, uh, look what you've done already to us. We're going to surrender. Take your rifles, break them up in the snow. There was snow on the ground. You're a prisoner of war. And uh, we lost so many already. Of course, they came quickly, gathered us up. When we got up to the Germans, if you had a wristwatch, it was gone. If you had a ring, it was gone. Uh, they would take our, whatever they could get from us. And some of them, some of the Germans and the old uh, worn out boots their boots would exchange them for the shoes that our combat boots and leave the guys have the old ones well when we went back it was through of course enemy lines it reminded me of one of the movies I've seen about the Civil War the first thing that I spotted was Americans in a three quarter ton truck covered with frost and all dead from that as we went forward there were horses that were dead germans had brought up their supplies using horses and horses on the side and everywhere you looked there were german and american dead and we were very quickly taken in we walked a long way I remember we were very, very hungry. We hadn't eaten in three days. And some of the guys saw a sugar beet field. And right over they ran after the sugar beets. 
until they started firing over our heads, and I grabbed one of these dirty, muddy sugar beets and cleaned off the mud and broke it up and and gave some of the guys something to eat. They just cleaned off the mud as good as they could, but that was good to us at the time. They put us on these boxcars, and we were nailed in. The boxcars took off, and of course, nothing marked POW on it. Our own Air Force came over and strafed us. boxcars were open and I remember looking down at the number of dead that they pulled out of the boxcars and laid on the side of the road. Air Corps had no way of knowing that we were POWs aboard there. But then they took us to a place, as I told you, Stalag 9B in Bad Orb, Germany. And they put us in um barracks. Bunks that we had were uh, straw. Many things happened there. One of the things that, of course, I always will remember is that and across the door of the barracks was a, a big wooden board. And we were locked in at night and this big wooden board would go across the door. And one of the guys found out that there was a crack between that door and it was about, uh, I would say about three quarters of an inch. But we didn't know it. I didn't know it. Most of the people were asleep. But two of the guys went up, put a board between that crack, lifted up. The board that was keeping us in from the outside fell off. Around the place itself were, of course, towers with with Germans in there with machine guns ready to shoot us or if anything happened. Here, these guys stayed in the in the shadows of of the of these barracks at night and went down, starving like we all were at the time. We were all walking skeletons. Or went uh, down to the German mess hall. When they got down there, in came the German mess sergeant. They were discovered, and they picked up a cleaver and killed him. Then they ran out in the snow, took snow and washed the blood off their hands, came up to where we were, into our barracks, and most of the people there knew nothing at all. We heard the sound of dogs. There were the dogs coming up, Germans with their rifles, bayonets fixed. And they came, and they grabbed us, never gave some of us time to even get a shoe on, and pulled us out in the snow and put us before three large lights. You didn't know how things were going to go from there on out. And we had with us at the time two chaplains, a Catholic chaplain, decided to stay with us, and a Protestant chaplain. And they came by to tell us what was happening, and they said uh, what had happened there. 
And they said that the Germans were coming in. They wanted to get, of course, the individuals who killed the mess sergeant. They had already pushed us out in the snow and put us four lights and felt us all over. And the big bar across the door was off and laying on the ground. And they knew very well then that it And they came in. Well, thank God I never saw them go. I would hate to tell on anybody. But uh, the chaplain came in he, and he told us what had happened. He said, now, they have said that they're not going to feed us and we were starving to death anyway. And they're not going to, to feed us anything at all until they find out who the guilty party is. Told us that if they did not find them, that a lot of people would die. And everybody started talking. Who, who did that? One of them said that there was a young guy there. He, he didn't have much upstairs. And it was with an older person. And, and he said, we saw these two guys walk up toward the door in the night. And we saw them come back and wipe their hands and melted snow in a bucket. The only one in was our chaplain. He was listening to what they said. Well, he said a lot of young, a lot of innocent people are going to die. So tell. Tell your story. So they looked over the Germans when they came in, looked over, knew it was in our barracks, came in our barracks, and they found two bunks with bloody boots and they knew then that these were the two guys that had done this they took the two guys out watched them while they were shot and they put us back in and started to feed us again the food wasn't very much but I'll have to tell you how we got out of there Patton came in with these tanks busted down the barbed wire fences. And behind him was 44th Infantry Division. The German guards we had noted had taken off one by one, and so our guards were missing. And by the way, we had guards, some of them that were very good, and we had some that if you were fainted, or they'd kick you over and leave you in a snowdrift until your buddies picked you up. Patton came in, and knocked down the gates, noted to us all, he said, you're back in the American army once again. And he said, and you will have three meals a day. But when I tried the food, couldn't eat it, would come up. At that time, the neatest that you could find, spaghetti and meatballs and things <laughs> like that. And no matter how I would try, and the other fellows too that were with me, up they would come and we couldn't hold them down. All I could hold down were the wooden crackers that came along with the K-rations. And so that's what I ate. Got out, the first thing they did was to get off these clothes. And by the way, there were, there were insects that lived on you in that place. And we all had sores on us about the size of 50 cent piece and they sprayed us from head to foot with DDT and then they gave us anything any clothes that they had that 
we could get back to individuals that would get us out of there. We felt pretty good that we were in our own American hands at that time. There was a boat that had come. The gangplank on that boat must have been on a almost a 30-degree angle. And I thought, how in the heck am I ever going to make it aboard? But it was going home. So I climbed up that bank and got on that vessel, and away we went, and we were headed home. Oh, it was just wonderful. You weighed 85 pounds. I don't know whether you've seen pictures of uh, prisoners of war, but we had very little to eat. And, and every day at Stalag 9B, our chaplains had a funeral parade. And here were our own people. And the first cause was pneumonia. There were no drugs. People were dying of pneumonia. They were walking. There were skeletons. And there was, you got pneumonia, you might as well count your way out. There was a doctor there, but no, no drugs whatsoever. No hospital. We stopped over in, in England. There were individuals there from the Air Force. We were walking skeletons, but some of their men were in casts from their necks down to their, their feet. When I got in and I saw these guys in the condition they were, I thought, well, my God, I, I'm, I'm very happy to get home no matter what I weigh. When I finally got back home at Fort Meade, I went to Fort Meade Hospital. They told me, the nurses there told me now, whatever you want, we've got a icebox here. And you just go and help yourself to anything you can eat. <laughs> and I did that. Finally, however, the most wonderful thing of all was when I finally made it home. My name is Ben Rosenberg. I was born in 1944, just about two months before Mr. Street's experience at the Battle of the Bulge occurred. I met him in the fall of 1956. He taught math and science to my seventh grade class at Sudbrook Junior High School, just across the city line into Baltimore County. Mr. Street was an excellent teacher. We were a bunch of suburban kids from various social and economic backgrounds. But like all kids, particularly the boys, we were pretty rambunctious. I remember Mr. Street as a no-nonsense teacher, very demanding and very effective. He was getting us ready for algebra. But what I remember vividly, he said, I want to tell you all, about an experience that I had, I don't know if he said 12 years ago, but as everybody from his generation said, my experience during the war of the last Christmas of the war. And he related to us the story that he just narrated, which I just heard several years ago. His experiences were truly horrifying. It made an unbelievable impression on us. I remember we all sat there spellbound as Mr. 
uh, Street related what his experiences had been. And I want to tell you something that is re really, truly remarkable. I got together with a fellow that I have known ever since Sunbrook Junior High School, but I haven't seen him in more than 40 years. He's a physician in Chicago, very prominent physician. And we were talking about the good old days, at, which is what old guys do when they get together and they haven't seen friends for quite a while. I said to him, I said, do you remember Mr. Street? And his answer was, I sure do remember Mr. Street. And I remember that story that he told us about his experiences in World War II. And his recollection, and this happened last week, it's just amazing to me. His recollection was as vivid as mine. So you can conclude from that if there were 30 kids in that class, and I'm just making up a number, 29 of them, if they're still alive today, remember that talk that Mr. Street presented to us in 1956. I have been a lawyer for well over 50 years. I've hired many, many, many lawyers over those years, many. And uh, I've looked at probably several thousand resumes. And I will tell you, every time that I see that someone on a resume, that someone has served in the military or attended one of the military academies, it's a huge plus. I give tremendous credit to veterans in that way. We'll be right back. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new, and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667.
Our second segment tonight describes the experiences of Master Sergeant Retired Joe E. Ramirez, who was captured by the Chinese during the Korean War. The segment is narrated by his son, Brigadier General Retired Joe E. Ramirez. Good evening, General Ramirez. Really happy to have you on the program tonight. It's a real honor because, of course, I met your father. I know you well. We're happy to have you here tonight to present uh, the situation regarding your father and give some insights to us. So would you please provide a short background because you've done a number of things since we parted last. Well, great. First of all, it's my honor to be a part of this and to tell my father's story as something I'm very, very proud of. Um, my, you know, I, I come from a military family, obviously. I graduated from Texas A&M University in 1979, commissioned in the Army, spent 31 years in the Army, been all over the world. Obviously, you and I were classmates at the U.S. Army War College in 1999-2000. Um, I retired in uh, in 2010 uh, as a breeder general and came back to Texas A&M, and I've been here working here at A&M uh, for the last 11 years. Um, my father uh, grew up in Houston, Texas, and that's where I was born, and uh, so we're proud Houstonians. Um, and my, my, my father was a second-generation American, and uh, you know, his parents had, had been born in Texas, but his grandparents were from Mexico. And so that kind of sets the stage for kind of how things began for my father. He entered the Army where? He entered the Army uh, in Houston. Um, he grew up in the inner city, quite frankly, a, a poor family. Uh, grew up uh, inner city. And, uh, my, you know, my, my grandfather, his father was a janitor um, at uh, Rice University. Uh, my grandmother was a housewife and a mother. Uh, they, they had 13 children. Um, my father was next to the youngest. Um, so in 1950, he, he graduated high school and he decided that he was going to join the army and get out of the inner city and, you know, see the world, get out there and, and try to make a better life for himself. Um, so he joined the army as an infantryman, um, and, uh, became a sniper and was actually sent to the U S Marine Corps sniper school, um, to learn how to become a sniper. And of course, um, I, whether you could call it good luck or bad luck, um, 1950, June of 1950, North Korea invades South Korea and the Korean conflict began. And not long after that, my father was assigned to the 1st Cavalry Division um, and he wound up getting shipped off to Korea um, and they landed in the Pusan perimeter um, late that summer. And literally what he, what he told me was we no, no sooner got off the boats and we went right into, right into combat because we started fighting almost immediately um, along the Noctong River. Um, <clears throat> some pretty, pretty uh, horrific fighting, uh, sometimes hand-to-hand. Um, and again, it's, uh, along with the rest of the United Nations forces, began to push the North Koreans uh, completely out of South Korea. At the same time, you know, the Incheon landing took place. Um, um, and so they began to push the North Koreans out of South Korea and then, uh, and then crossed the 38th parallel, pushed their way up into North Korea. Um, he tells a story about being in Pyongyang, um, and kind of what an, what an experience that was being there that far North. Um, and then he wound up, uh, um, just short of China, um, with his with his unit uh, right around November 1950, and it was about that time that the Chinese entered the war. So when he was fighting up north, he was still part of the first Cav. Do you remember him telling you where 
he was captured and what fight he was in at that point? Yeah, he was he was uh, captured uh, at the, the the Battle of Unsan, which was not too far from the Chinese border. Um, his unit had gotten to Unsan, um, and it was cold. It was November. He said he does remember it was extremely cold, and he said we still had on our summer uniforms because we had moved north so quickly that we had outrun all of our supplies in terms of being able to get winter clothing. So they were at Unsan, and that was when the Chinese came across the border. And uh, to hear him describe it, he said they were like ants. They just kept coming because we would run out of ammunition, you know, killing the Chinese, and they just kept coming. It just wave after wave after wave. They divided his outfit. He was assigned uh, to the 2nd Battalion, 8th Cavalry Regiment in the 1st Cavalry Division, and they divided the outfit. They basically came right down the middle and split them up. And so they got separated from the rest of the rest of the unit. Um, and he said they, they began to climb up a mountain to try to see if they could get away from the Chinese. And after a couple of days, they were trying to fight their way back, and they got ambushed. And uh, that's where he was shot. He was shot five times. Um, and it was not long after that that the platoon leader said, okay, um, that's it, we're done. And he said, man, we're, we're going to go ahead and we're going to surrender. Okay, so he entered captivity then after the Battle of Unsan uh, sometime uh, in November. And from there, he went into captivity in uh, North Korea, correct? That's correct. Uh, what they did was the Chinese, uh, well, the first thing was, uh, you know, they got transferred from the North Korean guards to Chinese guards. They were literally lining them up and were going to kill them. And it was the Chinese that kept the North Koreans from killing them. Um, and, you know, my father was wounded and they began to march into North Korea. They, they marched this long line of American prisoners uh, north into North Korea. And he said there were several that died along the way because they couldn't keep up. Um, it was cold. They didn't have any supplies. They had no food. But they would march them uh, primarily at night. During the day, they tried to hide them uh, from U.S. pilots that were flying overhead. And then they'd march primarily at night. And it was several miles that they would march each day. And, and eventually they got to a, a place called Pyeongtong, which is up in the northern part of North Korea. And that was the uh, the prison camp where they wound up stopping. And that's where he wound up staying for the next uh, 33 months. Can you describe for us what he endured when he was in uh, captivity in that location? Yeah, it was pretty rough for them. They got there and, you know, of course, it, as the winter wore on, it got colder and colder and colder and they had no winter clothes at all. And he said they put them in these rooms that didn't have uh, it didn't have any windows. They had they had open holes, but no no glass panes to block the cold weather. So they would stack them in there. And he said, literally, they were laying side by side just to keep each other warm. And the person closest to the door was the one that they gave all as much uniform as they could to keep them warm uh, while they were there by the door. And he said that they fed them on primarily rice and millet and, and barley. Um, and he said they try to make soup out of that. And. He did say that they, they went out, they snuck out one night and killed the dog. They, they heard a dog barking and they snuck out and killed the dog. And he said some of the United Nations soldiers that were with him knew how to cook the dog. So they, able, they were able to make some soup with his dog. But the conditions were pretty horrific. He said several hundred men died that first year 
um, because they, 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 were, they were either starved, they were wounded, they were freezing. Um, it was pretty horrific conditions to hear him talk about it. He said the lice were terrible because the lice were constantly just eating them up. Um, and he, many of the men just starved to death. Um, you know, there's a, there's a famous Catholic priest by the name of uh, Chaplain uh, Emil Capon, um, who received the Medal of Honor in 2013, um, and whose remains were just returned back to Kansas in September. Well, he was the Catholic priest that baptized my father in Korea, and he helped keep my father alive in that prisoner of war camp. And he died in May of 1951. He was in that same camp, and he wound up dying. He got sick, um, and again, he was he was starving. He would feed the men before he he'd eat himself. He died in that prison camp in May of 1951. And as luck would have it, they found his remains just this past year, and his remains were returned back to Kansas um, just this past September. So pretty horrific conditions for all the men that were there. And, uh, you know, many, many died during those, those three years, almost three years, my father was a prisoner of war. I remember the story of Father Capone, and of course, yes, he's come back home to Kansas. They're already naming uh, chapels and things after him. It's a, it's a hell of a story. Well, I think it would have meant a lot to my My father died last year, and I can tell you it would have meant the world to him to have been alive to see Father Capone come home. Um, one of the things we did a few years ago was we took a family trip. He said, I want to take a family trip, and he had some places he wanted to go, but the first place he wanted to go was Pilsen, Kansas, and that was the home of Emil Capon, and he wanted to go there, and he wanted to see his home and the, the church where he, where he was the, uh, the priest before he went to Korea, and they have a statue there of Father Capon holding a wounded soldier, and my father, that was the first place he wanted to go, and I know it would have thrilled him to no end to see Father Capon come home, and unfortunately, he didn't make it uh, to see that, but uh, I like to think that you know, he's in heaven watching down and he got a chance to see the, the good priest come home. And we can hope that they're united now. Yep, absolutely. Did your father ever describe any coping mechanisms, any survival mechanisms that the, the men developed in order to endure their captivity and to last as long as he did? Because he obviously was wounded, which is one of the reasons why many people die in captivity. What was it that allowed him to sustain himself and his friends? Well, I think part of it, you know, had to do with one of the things General Grange mentioned, and that was his faith. But my father was always a very religious man, a very devout Catholic, and uh, he relied heavily on his faith. He had a, in 1949, my, my grandmother bought my, my dad a, a religious medal that he wore around his neck, and it was a religious medal from Mexico. Uh, from the village where you know, my, my father's grandparents had, had come from, and he had that religious medal around his neck. He hid that medal for the entire time that he was in captivity because he didn't want the Chinese uh, to steal it from him. And he still talks about, you know, when he came back and he was in his whole family met him at the airport. One of the first questions his mother asked him was, do you have that that medal, that, that medalla? And he said, I do. And he held it. He had it in his hand. And he he wore that medal for the rest of his life. I mean, I never saw my father without the, that medal around his neck. And before he died, he gave it to me. And it hangs on my neck right now. His his faith sustained him greatly. And of course, 
you know, the, the men looked out for each other. They, they had a, you know, it's, it, it's, it's amazing to me, the bond that those men forged um, in that kind of an experience. Uh, I had a, the opportunity, the honor of going and speaking at one of the national POW conventions in, in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And of course my father went and, uh, but to see the bond that these men forged because they would, they would get together and they would talk and they would cry and they would laugh and they would remember. And it was amazing how many spouses said, you know, he never talks about this at home. It's only during these events where he's around his fellow POWs, the, the other men that, that endured that captivity with him. That's the only time he'll talk about this because they're the only ones that understand. Um, and I, I think, you know, as a, listening to my father, you know, he went to POW reunions for decades and those were some of the best times of his life because he got together with the fellow soldiers that he was incarcerated with, that he was a POW with for those years. And to him, those were his brothers. That was the, that was his family. Those are the ones that helped keep them, keep him alive during those 33 months. And he never forgot that. That's great. When he was repatriated, it was because of a general exchange or release at the end of the war, right? Yeah, that's correct. In 1953, um, yeah, when the armistice was signed, he was repatriated um, and brought back to to U.S. lines. Uh, they came across what they call the Bridge of No Return there, right, right along the 30th parallel. And they brought him across. And, of course, the first thing they do is he went into medical care. and The, the doctors checked them all out and everything. They deloused them. Um, and they, they gave him, you know, cleaned him up, gave him clean clothes. And he said the first thing they asked him was, what do you want to eat? And he said, you know, he, and he, he came out of there weighing 70 pounds. I mean, literally, he was 70 pounds. And he said, I knew my stomach couldn't handle anything big, so I asked him for ice cream. <laughs> and uh, he said, I ate ice cream because I, I knew I couldn't handle a steak or anything big like that because I hadn't eaten anything like that for three years. Um, so he was repatriated in 1953 uh, along with, with many other POWs that were able to make that trek uh, coming back south. And we're, and we're put back into U.S. Line, uh, U.S. hands. How did he reflect on this experience in later life? Well, you know, it was interesting. When I was a when I was a child, he never talked to us about it ever. He never told us anything about that experience. Um, of course, you know, I was born in 1956, which was three years literally after he had been repatriated, and all through elementary school and even junior high, and for the most part, high school. Um, he never talked to us about it. He never, ever said a word to us about, you know, that experience. I, I knew that every year he went to a POW reunion somewhere in the United States. He went every year religiously. He and my mother would go. Uh, but he never talked to us much about it. And it wasn't until I was in college that he began to open up a little bit more and tell us a little bit more about, you know, what had happened, what he had endured, um, what he had seen. You know, it wasn't until I was an, I was a young man that uh, he began to really open up more about his experiences. And it wasn't until he was late, you know, later on in life. I mean, literally in his 70s and early 80s, where we convinced him to do some oral histories. Uh, we've, we've got recordings of him. We've got video of him talking about his experiences uh, as, a, as a prisoner of war in Korea from the time he landed there at the Pusan perimeter all the way to the time he was repatriated. 
um, and even beyond. He talks about, you know, even after he got he came back to the United States and he got out of the army and he talked about, you know, the impact that captivity had on him mentally and how, you know, he just he couldn't stand being home. He said it was too quiet. The walls were closing in on him. And he told his mother, I'm, I'm going back in um, because he couldn't he couldn't handle just being at home. He, he you know, that experience had had really done done something to him that he just couldn't understand at the time. And going back into the army, I think, saved his life because um, he went back into the army and he ran right back into all of his buddies that had been POWs with him who had also gone back in as well. So, you know, that that reunification with a lot of his prisoner of war friends, I think, helped save him. Um, and he went on to, to serve for 22 years. He retired uh, as a master sergeant in 1971. I was really honored by the chance to meet him. And it's an odd fact that my, my father also served in First Cav, but in the Army of Occupation. And then uh, the general commanding the division at the time your father was in it was actually a graduate of my school and had been Patton's G3 and chief of staff and was in the car when Patton had the accident. So there's quite a bit of history between us, Joe. I would oh, like yeah. to you over to General Grange now for some questions and comments. General? Yeah, so thanks. Great story, and thanks for sharing it. We all uh, have fathers and dads in the military on this call. So my father was also in Korea yeah, with the 187th and then with the seventh, second tour of the 17th Infantry. And they pushed they pushed the North Koreans up north. And then, of course, the Chinese Army of the Ants came across, like you stated, and it got pushed all the way back down, you know, towards uh, Seoul in that area. And that's when a lot of people got captured during that time. And I think my father was telling me about being at the bridge of no, no return. And it's very interesting about the religious medal. I, I have a parachute scarf that I wear that not all the time, but because of the, the type, but it's not a medal, but something that I wear my father that he had in the, as a paratrooper in the war. And I wore, wore it in my wars as well. And uh, uh, I think it kept me in some way alive in some tough situations. I thought it was really interesting about your father going back into the army and that you made the comment that if he did, that may have killed him in civilian life. That, that's very interesting. And uh, like you, had, you hinted that it may have been the same with a lot of his buddies. And it was, you know, when people, it was. Yeah. That, that was, that's a, that's a really striking comment. And, uh, well, you know, back in those days, uh, they didn't know what PTSD was. I mean, you know, that wasn't a term. Um, and you know, it, it was, he said, he, he said he remembers one time being at home and it was so quiet that he, he, when the phone rang, he ripped the phone off the wall. Um, and he said, the, I could feel the walls closing in on me because I was angry all the time because I needed to get out and do something. And he said, I, I told my mom and his, it, it devastated, you know, my grandmother, his mother, when he said he was going back in because she wanted him to stay there, stay home, get a job. And. But, it, you know, he, he just couldn't handle it. He said, I needed to I needed to go back. I needed to be around men that that I had served with, that knew me, that I knew them. That, And I guess he needed more time to be able to transition back. I, I think if you talk to anybody that's been through an experience like that, you know, within 24 hours, you're from captivity back into your living room, you know, with people you haven't seen in years. And I'm sure that there's, you know, there's got to be a transition period there to kind of you know, understand what you're experiencing at that time. You know, you hit on two of the subjects of the four last week's show, transition 
from the military to civilian life and PTSD. And uh, he, these, are, these are both perfect examples of that rapid transition. And, and you know, some of our shows in the future, we're going to get more depth on that. A very tough, uh, very, very tough thing to do. I mean, it's just tough enough just to come back from combat, let alone come back from as a POW. I mean, I, I, I cannot imagine. I've, I've lived a lot of my life on hostage rescue units. And I, it just, uh, because of that, the thought of how miserable that is and how terrible and that you, you, you're just driven to mission accomplishment because it's probably the worst thing that can possibly happen to a, a GI. But I really appreciate you being tonight with us and the story's wonderful. That people hear a lot of, a lot of Vietnam stories and a lot of stories of World War II. You don't hear a lot about Korea, just like the, you know, the Forgotten War type uh, issue and, and Korea's there. Yeah. You know, and we, we need to talk more about the forgotten war. So yeah, I agree. So much. Well, well, thank you for the opportunity. And like I said, uh, I know my father would be very proud. He, uh, he died last year, cancer. He was 89 years old and, you know, faced death with dignity. And he told me, cause I should have died so many times before I've been blessed to live this long. Um, but I tell you, I, I, in my humble opinion, a, a true hero, um, and, and a man that, that uh, shaped my life in many ways and a man I'll never forget. I second that, Joe. Yeah. Your father was quite the guy. Thank you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Here's your host, General Grange. Our third segment tonight covers the experiences of Sergeant Terry Buckler, who went on the raid to recover U.S. prisoners of war from the Sante prison camp in North Vietnam. The task force was titled Task Force Ivory Coast. This is uh, Ranger Doug, and want to welcome you to the show. We really are looking forward to this interview. 
So as the youngest member of the Sante Raiding Force, would you please describe your experiences up to the point of departing on the raid during the raid and after the raid? Would you describe what you learned about the POW experience at any time during your service time, or even if there have been any developments that have occurred after your service? We're always learning something about some of the POW experiences, and we are developing more information as we go, but many times, as you can imagine, we have to rely on secondhand experience. Whatever you have to say will certainly benefit the military and the vets community. Carry over to you. Okay. Start from the beginning. I was drafted. I volunteered for the draft in 1969 in March. I extended another year to get in special forces. Went through the training and everything at SF. The call went out on Smoke Bomb Hill. Bull Simons was looking for volunteers for uh, a mission. And uh, I went down to the little White House. He uh, said it was a moderately hazardous mission, and we'd be back by Christmas. If you were interested in continuing on, be back there for an interview. I went back, had an interview. I was uh, selected to be on the advanced team. The advanced team was about 25 or 30 of us, and we went down to Eglin. There was a total of 109 of us selected, and out of that 109, 56 actually went on the mission. Uh, like you say, I was the youngest. Uh, we trained for three months, and uh, the training was 80% of it was at night, and our night firing was terrible, about 50% accuracy. They uh, introduced us to the the scope that they had found in a sporting magazine. They ordered a couple in. We test fired them and it worked great. Our accuracy went up to about 95% accuracy. So it was a, a real uh, help on uh, the guys on the ground. November the 16th, they came to us, told us to pack our bag, we were leaving and we had no idea where we were going. And uh, so, and they took us, uh, security was very tight where we were at there at auxiliary field number three, which just happened to be down the road from the Doolittle Raiders who trained there, you know, back in uh, World War II. So we went to, loaded on a C-141 and we took off. 28 hours later, we ended up in a hot, steamy place. And it was about 4.30 in the morning. We had no idea where we were at. The old timers uh, knew we were in Southeast Asia by the smell in the air and the humidity. Uh, we ended up going to Takli Air Force Base. It was a CIA compound. We were there and uh, we were waiting for the uh, chief of staff and the president Nixon at that time to make the decision. At that time, we really didn't know who was making the decision. We just knew we were ready to do whatever they asked us to do. Uh, they uh, For lunch that day, they gave us a sleeping pill, told us to go back to our billets, get some rest, and report to the auditorium. That's 1,800 hours. Most of us didn't take the pills. We just went back and fiddled around. We knew things were getting tight at that point. We went back uh, to the little auditorium at 1,800 hours. Bull Simons and uh, Colonel Sidnor, who was uh, the second in command, Bull, uh, came on stage and pulled out a big map of North Vietnam, had Hanoi circled and Sante circled. Bull Simons said, uh, gentlemen, that's where we're headed tonight. We're going to rescue 70, 60 to 70 POWs. And uh, uh, there's a high probability 
of 50% of us not making it back, he said. If anybody wanted to duck out now, now's the time to do it. No one did. Uh, he told us to go back to our billets, secure our gear, and uh, they took us on a, a 130. We flew, went back to the hangar where we had all of our weapons and ammo and radios and everything stored. We checked them all out, made sure everything was working as should be. Got on our C-130, flew up to U-Dorn, and uh, got off the flight plane there in U-Dorn. And there were, uh, our choppers were lined up on the runway. One of the things that was unique about that night, uh, there was no communications to the tower, no lights. Uh, we boarded our H-53s, which were already warmed up and running got on them and uh, we were for, ready for uh, about a three and a half hour flight to Sante. Now the interesting part about that, which we didn't learn until later, was number one, uh, just how heavily armed and guarded North Vietnam was at that time. Uh, there were something like eight SAM sites around us and uh, four, five, 30, 85 millimeter art artillery and uh, we were flying in the uh, draft of a C-130, which was flying at uh, about five knots uh, above stall speed from it falling out of the air. And we looked like a flock of geese flying in. We were right above and the treetops. It looked like you could reach out and touch the trees. And it was uh, a quarter moon, which we, we were looking for because uh, like i say we did it without lights and we did it without communications the birds refueled in the air which was another first form uh the, the army and uh we got out uh, we were probably five minutes from touchdown and uh the pucker factor was up for myself i'd never been in combat before so this was a, a real interesting evening uh, the word came on that we were five minutes out. And about that time, uh, I heard uh, playing green, alternate playing green. And uh, what that meant, we had practiced. The planners that planned this did a fantastic job. And they, they said that uh, if one chopper crashed, we would continue on or got shot down or had mechanical problems, we could proceed with the mission. If two of them, uh, were out of commission for whatever reason, we'd have to abort the mission. Well, Greenleaf was the only one that we that was uh, we heard was aborted. That was 22 men on that craft, so we knew we were down some. But I tell you, the training that we did paid off in spades because we had trained enough and knew that if whichever aircraft went down, we knew what to do and how to how to react and the guys on the red wine and blue boy, it really didn't have that much of an impact on blue boy, but green and red wine, which is the element I was in, we became the assault team on the POW or, or on the cards and the compound itself. So Greenleaf had touched down at another facility about 600 meters to the south. And uh, it turned out that they, they ruined their graduating class. It was never truly revealed what they were, but uh, we found some of one of the guys brought back a belt buckle, which had a Chinese uh, emblem on it. 
So we and the guys that did it said they were not small like the VC. They were bigger guys like Chinese. So we kind of took it that it was the people from China were helping them, training them on the SAM missile sites and such. So when we landed, uh, we each each chopper, the people and the birds had their own little duties and responsibilities. Red wine took landed. Uh, we became Dan Turner, my captain, and I became a two-man uh, team. Our objective was to get to the communications building as quickly as we could to prevent them from calling in uh, additional troops. They estimated at the time there was 20 to 40,000 troops within 20 miles. You remember we're 23 miles from Hanoi, so uh, both Simons told us there was no A&E plan. Our objective, if there was a security breach, we'd know at the time the second chopper had landed. And if there was, we were back up to the bend in the Sog River and keep the, you know, the units together and we'd make it as bloody as possible for them to come across that area. So we uh, we got to the, we cleared the buildings by uh, the uh, techniques that we used and then um, we got right, right to the communications building, and that's when I heard the second bad news that night. Uh, the first being, you know, uh, alternate green leaf, and the second being no items. Items was code word for POWs. So uh, the green leaf people, chopper pilot, saw what he had done and went back, picked up the green leaf people, brought them back, and dropped them off in the location which uh, we were initially to. Uh, land in, and uh, took a little while to get red wine and green leaf together, but we we were able to do that. And, and the colonel went on and looked for POWs himself. There was no POWs; they had been moved, and uh, uh, a few uh, month or two before. And we found out later on when we talked to the POWs that were at Sante had been moved to Camp Faith. And uh, so we came back. They called our choppers back in. They had let us off and then landed in a, a location where they could readily come back in if need to be and pick us up, which they did. And as we were, uh, we had a, our count was off and we did one count, one man off. We did two, another count, still a man off. Third count, we finally, Dan Turner counted himself and we were full and ready. We took off. We'd been in there just a few minutes when about that time our chopper just went down like it was going to crash. And Dan Turner and I were sitting on the tail end of the, with the tailgate down with a PJ in between us on a minigun. And we saw this red flare going up our butt, and it, which actually was a, a SAM missile. And our pilots were dodging them and doing a hell of a job. They claimed that night that they fired 20 SAMs at us and mig cap guys as well but uh, fortunately we had one plane hit uh, tom lowry was shot down uh, due to a sam in fact tom's having open heart surgery today uh, but anyway uh, we came back and uh, it was a long flight back and a, a very disappointing one from all the raiders that we had not brought any POWs home because if they were there, we would have brought them back. We found out later through the POWs when, when Ross Perot had a party for all the Raiders and POWs once everyone was back. And we had an afternoon with the, where the Raiders and the POW exchanged stories and talked about what transpired that night. Um, when the uh, 
next day, all of the POWs, there were 13 camps in North Vietnam at that time, five of them being in Hanoi. After the raid, they loaded up all the POWs in the camps. Got to remember, 50% of the POWs had been held over five years. So uh, there was a lot of a lot going on in their minds at that point. They brought them all into Hanoi, and for the first time in years, uh, they put them in cells of 40 or 50 guys in a cell. They were able to communicate. They created their own uh, fourth air command, and uh, they were able to hold church services. Uh, I mean, they did training. Uh, they did stories on guys who tell stories about you know, a, a story of having to do with a maybe an opera they had attended or something like that. So it was just a great communication for them. They got better food, better uh, chow, and the beating stopped. So if you ask any POW what they think of the Sante raid, they'll tell us the best thing that ever happened to them. And uh, one of the guys came up one night when we were at a reunion and he said, well, you guys saved my life that night. And I asked him, I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I've been a prisoner six years and I just had it and I was ready to put an end to it. And you guys show up. So it was they knew that they had not been forgotten and that they were uh, people were trying to get them out. So it was a good move for all the POWs. That's for certain. All right, thank you. And Terry, thanks so much for being on our show tonight. Focused on America's POWs, MIAs, and those that are sent into harm's way uh, mm-hmm. to recover uh, those uh, captured. And again, like our inaugural show that we did last week, what is ingrained in America's special operations units is obviously never shall I leave a fallen comrade from the Fifth State Reigns of Creed, but it applies to special forces the other tier one units and all services in the military. Yes. Uh, you brought up some great tonight. You know, you're, uh, if, you, if I may just mention some points that you brought up that, that I'm familiar with to some extent, and your comments resonated with me. Uh, I knew Mark Meadows, for instance, very well. He was one of my mentors. And I knew a lot of the Raiders from the fifth group in 1973 and 74 when I was assigned near the third battalion. I lost two guys in Vietnam in El Company Rangers, Lurks. Lurks. And at that time, I didn't even know they, what their status was until well after I came back from Vietnam. Uh, they were at that time just MIAs. And and uh, uh, we're going to talk later on tonight about, because uh, I want to spend most of my time with you, obviously, but um, your experience. But uh, I know one made it back. And then... Uh, you know, I was involved in Eagle Claw with Hard Rock Charlie, First Ranger Battalion, working for and uh, support of Beckwith guys. And then mm-hmm. uh, in the unit myself, even though there was other purposes, you know, our mission was really uh, releasing the prisoners in the at Fort Frederick in Grenada. And right. then later on, uh, the failed mission with Eagle Claw, we were the Ranger Company uh, for that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then... Uh, also, uh, TWA-847, uh, right. those are regular Americans, and I say regular. Uh, I kind of believe in what Teddy Roosevelt said, I don't care if there's one American somewhere. It's our duty to uh, bring that person back, that American back. And yeah. there's a lot of others that aren't released now for, for conversation, as you know. Even uh, more of a benign environment, but 
to the guys pretty scary. And when I was in the big red one, the commander, we lost three guys in Serbia out of, uh, uh, the uh, Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, we got those three back, but by other mean, means besides a raid. But you brought up some good points, and those points, I just want to summarize a couple of them. Operational security, paramount, obviously. Unbelievable odds. You know, you stated, uh, Terry, about how the enemy situation around near a target and this, how small your force was to take that on. And your mission. Uh, with Sante, and to include uh, Eagle Claw in Iran, really mm-hmm. drove a lot of upscaling of equipment for the special ops units that performed those raids. Yes. Our night vision was World War II goggles, ski goggles, <laughs> compared yeah. to what they have today. Think about the shelf, and that's pretty much what people had to do. You know, there's yeah. inadequate equ- equipment and inadequate training until the task force is formed. People don't realize that though our military is the best in many ways of any military in the world, but you really don't get the focused training complex mission, which you just outlined, until you form a task force, and that's all you focus on. Well, your point's well taken because the Joint Chiefs of Staff, this was the first mission that was ever under the direct control of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And out of that come U.S. SOCOM, you know, a few years later when they recognized that, you know, we need specialized troops to do special missions. And, you know, if you look at the uh, bin Laden raid, you know, you can see Sante all over it with uh, crashing the compounds and taking the prisoners. They just had much better technology than we had, but the, the, the mission was the same as to find the person and bring them home or, or paralyze them. So right on target. Right on. And I, I really like the way you just described the Bin Laden raid. So we hope to have a, our guest uh, on for that raid tonight as well. Um, but you're right, the crash Tilo and what they mm-hmm. did about it and how, how and the alternate plans that are required, yep. which takes so much time rehearsal, so mm-hmm. much understanding on, on when to execute, uh, you know, communications we, required, yes. simple but reliable. And I'm sure well, you guys, you heard what, uh, when, you, when you talk about Bull Simons and the comments made, uh, there is no E&E plan. No, uh, it's really just a fight and inflict as much damage on the enemy chasing you as possible mm-hmm. before you go down, if you go down. And I'm sure none of you had any desire to be a POW and why surrender right. is not a range of work, which again yeah. applies to all tier forces. We knew it was a do or die in a situation and, you know, none of us were wanting to be captured and would not allow that. And, you know, that was our decision, but it was each man had their own ideas of how they would take it on. And uh, it wasn't going to be an easy task. But we also knew our job was to free the POWs and whatever it took to do that. That's what we were going to do. Going back to the training, you know, we, we did over 170 rehearsals and, you know, you just you knew, you know, what you were looking at, 
you know, Barbara, the CIA made a markup, a, a mock-up of the compound, and we studied that. You know, you'd have a little prism when you weren't training out on the range. You were and looking through Barbara's little prism, and that put you down on the ground and looked like you were right there. So when you landed, you were automatically oriented to what you were about to accomplish. Kudos to the intel guys was act for you in preparation in, yep. in, in that time in history. I oh, mean, yeah. that's pretty good intel uh, for that for that time. You the rehearsals, the, the amount of rehearsals it takes is so important as you outlined. Uh, you know, I, I let me ask you a question: Did you ever go through SEER training no. before the raid? No. Mm-hmm. You see, the, the army was was a little lacking on SEER training, especially level C. And and uh, look at what you were put in. It doesn't mean that you 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 don't know how to survive, you don't know how to move and uh, for evasion, you don't know how to resist, uh, et cetera. But you you didn't have that training, which right now is a requirement, you know, in central forces. Uh, sure, and it's it should be all aviation units. Um, what's your comments on that? I, I agree. I, I just, you know, when I speak to military units, I tell them, you know, we all hate training, but training saved our ass. That's what it boiled down to, because, you know, we knew when they said green leaf, alternate green leaf, we knew exactly what to do. There was no second guessing it. We we jumped off that chopper just like we were doing it with the help of green leaf as well. But we had trained and knew exactly what each role we had, and everybody did their role. And it was because yeah, of the right. training. The multiplier of, of that rehearsal, of that training, which, which made it possible for you to be superior, at least on site, yep. for the near target against the, your enemies. I mean, without exactly. that training, without those rehearsals, you, you, could, you know, the chaos would, would have been unbelievable. Exactly. And you were able to adapt to that with all those tra- changes because of that training. Tell me real quick about your feeling on, on uh, I have my own, on Dick Meadows, uh, probably one of the best trainers I've ever met in my oh. life, an understanding of combat. What, what's your, what do you, give me some words on Mark Meadows and his honor. As you know, he's not with us anymore. Right, right. But he was. Dick was just, uh, you know, uh, he was, he was very instrumental in, in, putting together the plan for this. And, you know, I was an E-5 buck sergeant at the time, and, you know, I, kn- I knew Dick Meadows, you know, his reputation and everything, but he never, you know, Dick was a real low key about that. You know, he, he just wanted to get the job done, and he, he led by example. That's the part that I saw from him. You know, I mean, if if you had a problem, and he was he was on Blue Boy, which was inside the compound, but he also worked with the all of us as well. I mean, he he didn't do it as I'm in charge. It's what do we need to do to make this better type of deal. He listened to you, and he listened to the you know uh, my captains and stuff like that as well. And he he was just a uh, a great guy to to mentor to and. Uh, you know, uh, I can't say anything negative about the guy other than he loved to run. <laughs> uh, physically, he was uh, in very good shape for uh, a gentleman his age. And, you know, I was 20 years old, and I'm thinking, God dang, this guy's, you know, we called it the Meadows Mile 
and which was a couple miles. And uh, we, when we first yeah. got down there, we were doing a lot of PT just to make sure everybody was up in shape. And along with that was Pappy Kittleson, who, you know, was, uh, this was his fourth POW raid, the only American to be on four POW raids. Yeah, he was at Cabanatuan at the age of 19. And uh, so, you know, Alamo Scout and another guy that just was a leader, but didn't profess to be, I know it all or anything, or you do it my way or the highway. He listened. Tough guy. Oh. Part of the initial part of uh, the SF heritage. Uh, yes. Modern day SF. Um, so what uh, we're, we're going to have to move to some uh, other heroes on tonight's show. But uh, I know if you have a closing comment, uh, you know, also uh, Ranger Doug may have a, a, a final question of you. Uh, let me before you do a, a final comment, uh, Terry, uh, Ranger Doug, do you have do you have something that uh, you're dying to get a, get a hold of Terry to answer for you? Yeah, Terry, you, you mentioned something I know about, and it's a really key point. When you mentioned that you improved your accuracy by the acquisition of something that was off the shelf, that was the Aimpoint site, which was a new hunting item generally for right. daylight hunters, but you guys were able to use it for nighttime acquisition and your accuracy improved greatly. Is that correct? Yes, greatly. And that's and that, exactly. That goes back to that SF maxim or a soft maxim we always talk about, about improvise, adapt, and overcome. That's brilliant. And Dick was the guy who found that scope, <laughs> you know, looking through a, a sports magazine and uh, they they brought a couple of them in. I think it sold at the time for 55 bucks and they brought them in and uh, we had a little trouble figuring out how to mount them on our AR-15s and stuff, but that got worked out. And uh, I tell you, you know, Bull wanted it sighted in to where uh, in a three round burst, you could uh, hit your burst with a beret and uh so it was it was a great deal for us i mean it really you just put the dot on the what you wanted to shoot and pull the trigger and you you know you fired with both eyes open and uh, it was for quick kill and it worked great i went to school under sidnor and meadows back a while ago down there well bud sidnor is a it was an amazing guy too you know a uh, great great guy to be under and uh, just uh, there was a lot of good men on that raid I, I feel so blessed here I am a buck sergeant with no experience and serving with some of the icons and that at that time in special forces and uh, really really was uh, fortunate uh, if you would you have a lot of GIs uh, that on the uh, show tonight that are lis listening in some of them mm -hmm. probably asking questions and and they're 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 soft and general purpose forces, but people that were involved or just believed so strongly and never leave a fallen comrade. Please Amen. give us your closing comments on, well, on this. You know uh, what what we have done in Afghanistan is a, a damn shame, and it should never happen. And I, I pray to God it never happens again. Uh, you know. We're, we're a country that goes after and helps other nations, and we're letting our own people suffer that have helped us. So I think uh, that's a, that's something that uh, needs to be corrected, and I know at the highest levels is where that stems from. But to the average soldier, you know, I, I tell uh, people, you know, I was a buck sergeant with no experience in combat and had the option, the, the good fortune to serve on one of the more uh, historical raids in military history. 
And if you're a young soldier and you're wanting to make a career of the military, you know, you too could be the next Terry Buckler from the standpoint of being on a mission that is life-changing for you and the people that you go after. And, you know, our military, I still believe is the best military in the world. And, uh, you know, we, we may stumble here and there, but when, the, uh, when it's time to uh, do the job, we do it. So right on, right on Terry and Terry, look, thank you so much. It's an honor to have you on our show tonight. Uh, My hopefully pleasure. you can come back some of the other subjects. And again, honor to be with you. we'll be right back. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Here's your host, General Grange. Okay, our next guest is Bucky Burris, Special Forces Officer and uh, member of the unit that was involved in Operation Eagle Claw. I met Bucky uh, as a as a Ranger Company Commander, uh, working with his unit on uh, this mission and some others. And uh, Bucky, welcome to the show, Veterans Radio Hour. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Glad to be here. I appreciate you being on with us tonight uh, to discuss Eagle Claw. But before we get into the operation. Can you just give us a quick background on yourself as a as a GI? Yeah, sure. I enlisted in the Army in 1965 uh, because I wanted to go see what Vietnam was all about, and it was a sort of a family thing anyway. And uh, when they, I told them I wanted to be a rifleman, they nearly tied me in the chair, but then they noticed that I had a college degree and asked if I wanted to be an officer, so I said, sure. Went to basic and AIT and then straight to the Infantry Officer Candidate School at Fort Benning. Was commissioned in September 1966. At that time, because Special Forces in those days was bad for one's career and possibly one's health, they, uh, there weren't enough first lieutenants and captains volunteering for Special Forces, which was a prerequisite to be one or the other. So they let uh, about a dozen of us who were happened to be distinguished graduates to volunteer for special forces if we wanted to. So 12 of us did and uh, we came to brag. They kept six of us. And uh, so I spent the next four years in special forces, including two tours in Vietnam and the mobile strike force, and then went uh, to the advanced course off to Germany, commanded two rifle companies, came back into special forces, was an instructor in the school. And uh, at that time, Colonel Charlie A. Beckwith, the founder of the Delta Force, was looking for some people. He he allowed me to go over to the British SAS selection course, a course, by the way, which Dave Grange is very familiar with because he's the first guy who uh, did both courses. He actually went to the SAS course because we didn't have one of our section, uh, one of our selection courses going at the time. So that's how he ended up later on in our unit. 
But then in 1977, we were allowed to activate the first Special Forces Operational Attachment Delta to fill a void that existed in the Department of Defense to have a standing force to conduct hostage rescue and direct action missions and, and that sort of thing. Uh, you've heard on the last podcast about the Sante Raid. Uh, the Sante Raiders had to pull together a force to conduct that operation, and that was one of the reasons that Beckwith was allowed to form the Delta Force so that we have a standing force to conduct such operations. The problem was that the rest of the joint forces were not prepared to do so. It was a peacetime environment. The Even the first Special Operations Wing and their, their MC-130 combat talons were not allowed because of training restrictions to conduct night blackout landings at that time until the, the need to rescue the hostages from uh, Tehran occurred. And what had happened was after 18 months of selecting and training the right guys, um, Beckless outfit was subjected to a an evaluation that determined that we were actually prepared now for to conduct the operation. I happened to be fortunate enough to have been a member of that organization from day one, and as a result, uh, when the task organization for the unit was put together, Beckwith decided to make me his deputy ground commander for the operation. In those days, it was known by the the innocuous name of Rice Bowl. And in fact, the first time I ever heard it called Eagle Claw was after the attempt that they made. And it sounds like it's a little sexier name than Rice Bowl, I, I suppose. But a Rice Bowl served us well because it was a pretty good deception. You hear uh, you have an OPSEC leak about Operation Rice Bowl, and you probably think it's a relief operation in, in the Middle East or something, or the Near East. In any case, uh, so there we were. Uh, prepared to go to Tehran, prepared to rescue the hostages that were being held by Iranian militants. And the only problem was from day one through the actual execution of it, there was nobody who could get us in and get us out to do the job on the target. The first Ranger Battalion, Hard Rock Charlie, Dave Ranger's company actually, was in support of us for this operation. The young Rangers did a magnificent job in preparing to seize an airfield for us to exfiltrate from and to marshal us in the area there when, once we arrived uh, at that airfield with the hostages and, and the uh, assault force prepared to marshal us up, get us all accounted for, and fly us out of the country, and then they were going to leave the airfield uh, in the last aircraft. That's probably a little more than a nutshell that you wanted, General Grange, but there it is. Well, Bucky, that's fine. We need that. We need that. A set drop to to talk about this. Uh, can you make a few comments on uh, the the size of the force compared to the threat uh, and 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 the weaponry required? Or, no, I, actually, it's the weaponry that was allowed under yeah. certain constraints that can perform your mission. Can you make a couple comments on that? The people in yeah, the weapon. Sure. Yeah. The 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 initial constraint was. Uh, a number, the number of qualified operators we had available to go conduct the operation. And that number was a, approximately 90. And uh, just getting that 90 there and out was a problem for the, for the aircraft, as we'll see in a few minutes. But uh, that's about all the people we had. We actually uh, took the people who were running selection and training and turned them into a security element 
outside of the embassy so that that was really everybody we could muster from from the newly formed trained and evaluated delta force so uh that was a problem but uh, we we were we were fully confident that if somebody could get us there we could do the job the problem was that uh as i said the nation was not prepared the forces necessary to get us there and get us back out one of the restrictions, unfortunately, was, for example, the restriction on the use of, of airstrikes, the limited use of, of uh, AC-130 gunships that were allowed by the Carter administration, and that sort of thing. To give you a good example of that, the administration declared that we would not be allowed to engage anyone outside of the uh, embassy walls, regardless of what they were up to, until we first used a riot control agent on them. And uh, we went back and, and asked the administration, said, look, you know, you're sending us thousands of miles to this hostile environment, and you don't think we have the, the uh, common sense to only engage necessary targets external to the MC compound. Now the answer came back, no, you have to use riot control agents uh, before you can engage anybody with live ammunition outside of the, the compound. Uh, we had uh, a couple of AC-130 gunships with their 20-millimeter, uh, 40-millimeter, and 105-millimeter weaponry that were going to support us, and we we're very confident. We worked closely, closely with the, these guys from 16th Special Operations Wing, and we were confident that, A, they would be there, and B, they would uh, be able to shoot for us. So to overcome the idea that, uh, or, or the restriction that we couldn't engage anybody external to the compound without first using riot control agents, I personally took one CS baseball grenade that I was going to throw across the embassy wall if we needed it in case we were getting attacked. Throw it over the embassy wall, call Pappy Gallagher, the late Pappy Gallagher, and say, Pappy, see that pup of CS? Put some 40 millimeter mesh metal on that target, would you? And uh, that was <laughs> that was how we got around uh, the need to use riot control agents before we could engage anybody external to the compound. But in addition to that, the restriction against airstrikes, either as a diversion or as a punitive uh, measure, uh, those were both rejected. And as a result, when we were unable to complete the mission, the Iranians uh, made us look like the like fools and like uh, very incompetent people and there was no they paid no price for that unfortunately to hear about the sante raid and then of course uh eagle claw on uh on, on use of force um and and of course we were plagued what by with helo problems uh from the beginning um you know some of the, some of the great great pilots and airmen don't get me wrong but i mean we were plagued with Hilo problems, and even though there was a, a few with uh, the Sante, it was not near as bad, and, and, and the distances were, were not near as, as far. But the rules of engagement—it's amazing how more restrictive they were on Eagle Claw. Yeah, that is that is pretty amazing. But uh, that is the, the way that particular administration wanted to respond, and of course, as good soldiers, we responded. Uh, in accordance with those limitations, although we did get a couple of workarounds, like using one CS grenade as B-Vive control agent, 
But from the beginning, the problem had been, and, and Charlie Beck was said from day one when we were given the mission to, to be prepared to do this, he said, you know, we're ready. My guys can do it. All we need is somebody to get us in and get us out. And uh, of course, there were very few uh, air assets capable of going that far into hostile territory, recovering, first of all, dropping the assault force, secondly, recovering the assault force and hostages and returning them to friendly territory. Initially, we were told by the administration that everything had to be done from the continental United States or U.S. territories. In other words, we, we would not be able to use a foreign country for any, any intermediate staging bases or anything like that. And we very quickly uh, showed the powers that be that, that that was an impossible task. So we were allowed some intermediate staging bases and that sort of thing. But what one has to remember is that the lift aircraft, the assault aircraft, were were very limited in type. There weren't people said, why do you use Blackhawks? Well, duh, there weren't any Blackhawks in service yet. Uh, there were a couple of, of Air Force H-53 Pavlos, but the problem with them was that uh, they, unlike the RH-53s that, the, that the primarily the Marines flew and that, that was used, the RH-53 was intended to be a mine-sweeping helicopter aboard aircraft carriers. The characteristic they had that we needed was the ability to fold the tail so they would fit on the elevator so you could put them below depths. Because you have to remember the, the Russians were still in Afghanistan at that stage. And if they saw the Nimitz or any carrier with eight big helicopters steaming toward Iran, uh, it would be pretty obvious what they were up to. So they had to be stored below decks so that the, the Russian surveillance aircraft uh, couldn't spot them and the Russians couldn't interfere either by by letting the Iranians know we were coming or actually interfere physically themselves. Uh, so that's why we ended up using H-53s. They're not like the current H-53s. They were much underpowered compared to uh, compared to the H-53, the modern H-53s that the Marine Corps is still using. Uh, the, the modern engines are, are much more capable and fuel efficient than, than the ones that were in the H-53s in those days. As a result of that, uh, those engines and of that aircraft, in order to carry enough of us from the refuel site to a second hide site, the refuel site was at a place called Desert One in the middle of the desert. I'm, I'm sort of skipping over some things, and forgive me if I'm assuming the listener knows too much about the operation, but the what was intended is that we were going to a desert site called Desert One that had been surveyed by some very brave people from another government agency a month ahead of time and, and an Air Force CCT guy, John Carney. Uh, this site had been uh, identified as the refuel and transfer point. And what would happen is that the C-130s, which include the troop carriers and fuel carriers, would land at Desert One. The helicopters would then show up. By then, they would have burned off enough fuel to be able to carry the assault force forward. And then 
the C-130s would leave the fuel and and uh, and troop carriers, and the eight RH-53 helicopters would continue on to Desert Two, which was a staging site near. And as luck would have it, or fate, or whatever, they also encountered a haboob, a dust storm, en route to Desert One. One of the aircraft, as soon as they they crossed into Iran, developed engine trouble or rotor trouble, had to land. Another of the eight helicopters, so then we're down to seven. Another another of the eight helicopters picked that crew up, tried to go forward, got lost in the dust storm, and returned to the Nimitz. So now we're down to six helicopters who are in this dust storm, unable to see uh, and unable to navigate because there was no GPS in those days. Uh, another thing that people seem to forget, it was very difficult navigating uh, in any situation uh, compared to the way it is now. But nevertheless, we had these uh, six RH-53s out looking for Desert One. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, the roadblock team uh, that was there to protect the LZ, basically, uh, had blown up a fuel tanker. The fuel tanker was burning. Now, the fuel tanker that was getting ready to pass into the LZ and, and, and compromise it set a fire and was burning. And fortunately for the six helicopters, that's what they used as a beacon to, to draw them into Desert One. Uh, they landed. They were already an hour and a half late when the last ones got there. We were going to run out of daylight and uh, we were going to have to try to find an alternate second night hide site because of the daylight. We didn't want to be flying near Tehran at daylight. But then one of the six remaining helicopters developed engine trouble or rotor trouble or some chip-like trouble and was unable to press on. So now we're down to five helicopters, incapable of taking the necessary number of people we need to go forward. We're running out of daylight, and we've already lost uh, three of the eight helicopters. So much to say that we wouldn't lose one or two more when they left, tried to leave the second hide site to, to pick up the assault force. The R-53 was notoriously bad about not one start once you turned it off for the night. Uh, that's oversimplification. But I do I remember that uh, on the operation schedule, the op sched, which is sort of a what-if list, contingency planning list, basically, but what-ifs. And I, I remember on that the key page of that, one of the what-ifs was if fewer than six helicopters leave Desert One, it was the only word in all caps on that page of the outskin that said abort. So the decision had been made wisely uh, before we even left for the operation that if we couldn't leave Desert One with fewer than with uh, six helicopters or more, uh, that we should abort. So the decision was made to abort, and uh, we were going to leave some pocket litter to try to indicate that it would have been Russians who had been there. Um, you know, just anything to try to confuse the issue for the Iranians. And then we were going to head back to our intermediate staging base. The helicopter was going to go back to the Nimitz. The one remaining uh, helicopter was going to be burnt to shred with with uh, some thermite grenades and C4 that, that uh, had, actually had a rucksack full of it. 
just perception of contingency. So as uh, as we were making the retrograde to the Nimitz and to our intermediate staging base, unfortunately, one of the helicopters that required more fuel in order to get back to the Nimitz, for whatever reason, I've heard various reasons from various people, but it crashed into one of the C-130s, uh, killed eight brave airmen, three Marines and five Air Force, and damn near engulfed the the Delta guys who were aboard that aircraft in, in plane, but they all did manage to escape. Once that occurred, aircraft began running out of fuel. That's, there was this huge uh, fuel bird and helicopter burning madly, and that was, was going to burn for hours. We knew that there were, there were hundreds of gallons of, of uh, jet fuel that were burning. And the great shame is that we had to leave the bodies of those brave airmen there or the aircraft that were taking everybody else out were, were about to run out of fuel. In fact, a couple of them, a couple of them had to leave before we actually got everybody loaded in order to be able to make it back to the intermediate staging base. So in the end, we brought all the air crews, remaining air crews, the helicopters, put them aboard the MC-130s and managed to get back to the intermediate staging base. Uh, the mission had failed. There's no two ways to put it. So on that, Bucky, on that mission failure, however, uh, on the positive side, what real quickly in wrap up, what came of that mission? What, yeah, what, just, what happened? The, the fortunate thing is the, the, the fortunate thing of this very unfortunate operation was the fact that uh, it showed unquestionably that we needed standing joint forces capable of operating together to conduct this sort of operation. There was a commission put together under Admiral Holloway that examined it, made certain recommendations, and the, basically the recommendation, the primary recommendation was that U.S. Special Operations Command be established to ensure that we could operate uh, jointly. And one of the most important things about U.S. Special Operations Command, the bill that established them, was the fact that they gave them their own major funding program so that they no longer had to fight for money from, from an Air Force that wanted more bombers or an Army that wanted more tanks or uh, a Navy that wanted submarines instead of SEALs. Uh, the rest is history. What, what uh, the forces under the Joint Special Operations Command and U.S. SOCOM have done since then is nothing short of magnificent. And it makes one proud to be an American. Unfortunately, it had to stem from this Disastrous, op disastrous operation in the desert. Well, Bucky, uh, thank you for that, and and with the and with the wrap up, uh, at least the guts to try uh, units and warriors that do something about our POW. So thanks for being on tonight, and more to follow. Thank you, sir. It's my pleasure. God bless America. God bless America. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new, and then it's very reliable. 
At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Here's your host, General Grange. Okay, our next guest on is Command Star Major Rick Lamb. Uh, and uh, Rick, welcome back. This is uh, your second show. You're, you're becoming, uh, you, you said last time you were on five, served the five different continents. Well, that's why you're on again. However, I want you to, to talk to us a little bit about Operation Eagle Claw. But before we do that, give us a quick uh, background on who you are. Well, again, I, uh, I am retired Command Sergeant Major Rick Lamb and uh, served uh, over 40 years uh, executing joint uh, combined interagency special operations, both in and out of uniform. Um, again, like you said, I led soldiers in operations spanning the tactical level to the strategic uh, in over 49 countries across five continents and in six geographic combatant commands. I spent about 12 years overseas and uh, loved every minute of it and uh, participated in almost every major combat operation from uh, Eagle Claw, me and my first time linking up with you, uh, through Iraqi Freedom. And uh, so I, I currently now work for uh, the Global Special Operations Forces Foundation, or GSF, and uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit that advocates for special operations. Roger that. And so uh, what we just did, uh, Sergeant Majors, we just had uh, Colonel Bucky Burris, uh, who was with the uh, assault unit, and we'd like you to give us uh, your perspective on the Ranger uh, participation in Operational Eagle Claw, if you would. Just run through a summary for us, and then we want to hit you up with some questions. Okay. Yeah. You know, I'd love to do this because the, uh, the Rangers often get overlooked uh, in Eagle Claw. And, uh, you know, if we go back to 1980, I think I was a young corporal in uh, first Ranger Battalion and, and assigned to Hard Rock Charlie uh, under, under you, actually, then Captain David Grange. But uh, basic rangering had not really changed significantly in over 225 years. I mean, rangers were at home in the wild. You know, we moved long distances on foot. We spent Monday through Friday uh, in the swamps of uh, Fort Stewart down there. And uh, we operated in uh, with stealth and cunning, executed reconnaissance, raids, ambushes, a lot like our forefathers did all the way back to Colonel Robert Rogers during the French and Indian Wars in 1755. And, you know, I look back on it now, and we, we were wearing helmets from 1942, we carried our uh, loads using web gear from 1967. Our uniforms were those old Vietnam you know, ERDL camouflage that was developed in 1948. And we wore the olive drab jungle boots, uh, we, 1951 patrol caps. I mean, we were we were carrying old stuff, but it was the best old stuff in the inventory. You know, our, our rifles, if you remember, they were M16A1s. We had 
AR-15s or the XM-177s. We had those old OSS vintage 22 caliber pistols and suppressed MAC-10 submachine guns for special missions. And again, our primary movers at that time were still the UH-1 Huey, uh, the C-130 Hercules, and we, uh, we jumped using T-10 parachutes with those those old dial of death harnesses. And uh, but again, the Iranian hostage rescue mission, you know, codenamed Eagle Claw, it changed everything. It changed all that. And it forced us to improvise. And I'm, I'm not sucking up to you, but we were very fortunate to have good leaders like you um, on the ground with us. And I mean, you were a second generation ranger. Your dad uh, was a hero of ours as well. I mean, he jumped into Normandy during World War II, was an enlisted guy, uh, completed multiple tours in Korea and Vietnam. I mean, you, you came from good stock. So uh, we were lucky to have you. And again, I mean, you your, your time in Lima Company Rangers with the 101st in, in, in Vietnam, I mean, that, that brought a, a combat focus to us young kids that, uh, that you had honed on the battlefield. And, and you brought that to everything you did. And that was the uh, that was probably the, the most impressive thing about it. So, I mean, you, mo- you motivated, focused, you were fit, uh, technically, technically proficient. And I like to joke with people that we, we did best Ranger PT uh, you know, best ranger competitions during our, our regular PT, and that's and that's no joke. So, uh, and again, sir, I, I'd like to thank you. You, you were the uh, the standard that I used to measure every officer, you know, for the rest of my career. And uh, and, and 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 again, I, I credit I credit you with being the father of the modern day ranger. I mean, that was the break between you know Rogers Rangers and and you know us being the Swamp Fox, and uh, and then getting us into the 21st century. So, uh, you know, the mission sets, the relationships, the joint tactics, techniques, procedures that survive to this day were all started on the prep for Eagle Claw. And uh, that set the conditions, I think, to make the U.S. Army Rangers the best in the world at what they do today. And the, the one thing that sticks out in my mind, you know, when, uh, when Hard Rock Charlie received the warning order for Eagle Claw, you, know, you brought us into the day room and uh, you wanted to know who drove off-road vehicles, who owned motorcycles, who were the best snipers and machine gunners, you know, who had mechanical experience, who grew up on a farm and could keep equipment running. I remember this, using bubble gum and bailing wire. So, and I mean, you, you were leveraging strengths that we didn't even know that we had, and you were modifying our task organizations for missions that, uh, that we had never seen. And so I remember the old, uh, those old M151 Jeeps rolled up. Um, we learned how to drive and maintain them. Uh, we created vehicle and aircraft load plans. We practiced driving on and off the aircraft, which, you know, had never been done before, at least by us. I um, remember we watched the movie The Raid on Entebbe uh, as our first exposure to what an airfield seizure looked like. And then we task organized for a multitude of supporting missions, you know, like clearing and marking runways, engaging troop concentrations, cutting electricity, you know, by climbing the actual phone poles, you know, with the, with the linemen's kits. You know, operating heavy machinery. I remember the guys learned how to use, you know, drive a train, how to, how to drive, uh, you know, uh, bulldozers. And then we started integrating the uh, Air Force combat controllers uh, and the PJs so that we could immediately resume air operations once we took the airfields down. Airfield down, you know, the bikes would run the lights and uh, the beanbag lights and we'd, uh, we'd set up and the, and the guys would make the airfield hot again. So, uh, and, and what people fail to understand, I think a lot of times that we had to develop time warnings, equipment checks, uh, communications checks, you know, uh, could we get all the vehicles on and still have the, the jump clearing team on the, on the skin of the aircraft, you know, the accountability procedures, 
the uh, you know I, I remember we used handheld golf tally clackers and clipboards that were covered with luminous tape uh, and grease pencils you know to uh, to to actually account for all the rangers you know in, in, in total darkness I mean, we, we worked reverse work cycles sharpened skills in darkness using PVS2 night vision rifle scopes you, I really remember those they had that, that weird home and they were heavy and then the uh, the PVS5 binocular headsets I mean those were gen 1 uh, night vision scopes and uh, night vision headsets. And then we went down, if you remember, uh, and purchased motorcycles on the local economy and then integrated those into the formations along with the Jeeps. So what that allowed us to do was increase our speed, our reach, it expanded our ability to command and control, uh, but we needed radios. So individual radios didn't exist in 1980, so we used those large, you know, commercial off-the-shelf Motorola handheld radios that we called the BRICS. And uh, we leveraged uh, veterans from the Sante raid in Operation Blue Light. Uh, that was that was a first, you know, for young guys like me. And uh, we went up to SOT, and we we became proficient in advanced marksmanship, and then I think highly skilled in clearing buildings and operating in close quarters on urban terrain. You know, stuff that the guys do second nature today was uh, you know that was groundbreaking back in that day. Uh, and I think we became the best in the world at what we did, and it was just a great time to uh, to, to be a ranger. You know, the, the problem was that you know, what we were attempted to do hadn't been done since Vietnam, so we needed to put uh, Army Rangers on Navy helicopters and then have them take off from a, a Navy aircraft carrier deck. And uh, there were different tactics, techniques, procedures between the services. Our radios didn't talk. Uh, and then the challenges inherent to compartmentalized planning, uh, joint command and control, uh, they, they were all critical deficiencies that, uh, you know, again, hadn't been done since Vietnam, you know, for some five to seven years. So in the end, you know, the, all the disparate training standards, the dissimilar uh, TTP uh, you know, within that joint force, you know, combined with intelligence gaps that we had and also bad, bad weather, and it just, uh, it just doomed the mission. But in retrospect, you know, our, our, our failure in Iran made us better. Uh, we established commands, units, relationships, mission sets, joint tactics, techniques, procedures that, that didn't exist in 1980 but still survive today. And again, I think the lessons learned, you know, fixed a multitude of shortcomings, and they, they brought joint soft operations into the 21st century. And uh, it also prepared a small cadre of leaders to, to meet the future challenges of an ever-evolving radical threat stream. And, and so, so again, I, I think that we were, we were also not only making TTP, but we were making leaders. I think it set us up for, for the next, you know, 20 years. So the, you know, now 40-plus years after Eagle Claw, you know, the, the, the soft formations, you know, we're, we're the envy. You know, our, our guys are the, and gals are the envy of the world. I mean, we own the air, the land, the sea. Uh, and, and all the areas where they operate. So technology allows us to communicate at will, live stream video. We know precisely where our formations are on the digital map. We can rap rapidly project and resupply our forces. We can maintain you know, untold amounts of guided ordnance uh, on the other end of a radio handset. And we can evacuate our wounded within minutes of injury. So uh, so I, I guess the worry now is that uh, you know we're, we're again faced with change we find ourselves in yet another pivotal moment in soft history as the global threats kind of evolve back towards big power competition and adversarial relationships are now vaguely defined, you know, we're ill-defined by like competition, confrontation and conflict and our ability to recognize and prepare for that changing environment, much like the guys in Hard Rock Charlie did, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be critical or, or, or again, we risk tragic failure.
You know, Sergeant Major, a great rundown uh, in a short period of time. Really appreciate that. One thing that sticks in my mind is because of operational security, we had we were pretty much left alone to figure out the TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures in order to do these different things we're asked to do. Because not only did we have to, accountability is so important, especially in night ops, because uh, we don't we don't want to leave anyone. Fall or might, we have to make sure that doesn't happen to the best of our ability. And not only were we going to be responsible for our own troops, but also the hostages, the assault force, and then all the the uh, crew on the aircraft that we were, we're going to extract the party after the rescue mission. And so how do you do that in blackout conditions uh, with some of the antiquated equipment we have now? It wasn't antiquated if you were 50 years before, but uh, it, it compared to today, it's amazing how the guys came up with ideas on how to do that rapidly. It's un- unbelievable. Think about maintenance on the vehicles. It's not that the guys can't drive a Jeep. It's that how do you maintain it? Because those units, when they were told to send so many vehicles, so many radios, whatever, to us, they didn't give us their good stuff. They gave <laughs> us everything that was broken. So we had to use the farm boys and others that knew how to fix stuff on tractors and, and forklifts and, and uh, other equipment in order to, to make sure it worked. You know, because we're putting those things on aircraft. And so there's hazards big time, you know, because we started rolling off while they were still taxiing. These guys to put together was amazing. Oh, true, true. And, and that was that was one of the things that, that sticks in my mind is uh, I remember Guido. You know, you know Guido was, uh, I mean, that guy loved that Jeep. And uh, you didn't do anything to that Jeep without first going through him. You know, and he was just a young a young private. And, uh, but but it, that, was his, that was his vehicle. And, uh, but yeah, the, and, and again, so I, I think that was the, you know, the part of, um, you know, the, the men that were picked, you know, based on, because uh, a lot of the guys had trucks and Jeeps, a lot of the guys had motorcycles, you know, some, uh, some drove them off road. So the, uh, the ability to find and identify those cats and then task organize them was, uh, again, critical. And you're right. I, I just remember the, you know, the, the crosstalk that uh, that would go on in the chatter and the little uh, the little groups of guys at the tailgate of each of the aircraft you know counting and recounting and going by and uh, you know be counting ahead and uh, touching each and every uh, every man just to make sure that uh, that you had everybody because a lot of times the uh, you know sometimes would you you'd either get misoriented on the airfield or the airfield would uh, would drop you at the leading edge and then it would go to the trailing edge and then it would spin around and get ready to take off and uh, so you'd have to do that two mile hump with all your equipment all the way down and then find that aircraft that, uh, that you need to get back on. And I remember one night and I can't remember the kid's name, but, uh, but I knew he wasn't supposed to be on our aircraft, but, uh, but I said, you're here now, we got you. And, uh, you know, and we, we went ahead and took off and then cross leveled in the air. But, uh, you know, there, there was a short period of time where, where that, you know, whoever that aircraft commander was who had him on the manifest had to be shitting razor blades because, you know, he didn't have his guy, but we were able to, to you know, through the, uh, the communications that we did have going through the pilot, the Motorola to the pilots, the pilot back to the Motorola, we were able to, uh, to get that done. I, I don't know how we did it without leaving, no, without that, leaving people. Yeah, that, that was quite amazing. I mean, those Jeeps came off aircraft. They had, they had an ACL of nine packs, as I recall, and I don't know how many machine guns on it. It reminded me of <laughs> SAS in North Africa, the pictures you see, yes. or, you know, Patty Main, the 2AC, 
had the desert rats, all those guys, man, those Jeeps were loaded down to the max. Those old, uh, Willie's Jeeps. Amazing. Let me ask you a question real quick, sir. We had to make sure that if there was an aircraft stuck on a runway because the enemy fire or maintenance uh, and we didn't have any major hand equipment, how many Rangers did it take to push the air C-130 off the airstrip? You could, you could do it with as little as a squad or as much as a platoon. You could do it faster with a platoon, but you know, that's why I joke and say, you know, we did, um, we did best Ranger, uh, competitions for PT. I, I can remember days where uh, we'd show up uh, in formation, uh, you know, fluff and buff, um, you know, uniform with uh, load carrying equipment and a rifle. And uh, that B team, I mean, you worked those guys like uh, that, that was, that was um, legalized slavery, but uh, we'd have 40 pound shape charge boxes, uh, Bangalore torpedo boxes full of sand, uh, laws, uh, rations, uh, five gallon water cans and a stretcher. And you'd give us a few minutes to, to task organize within the platoon. And uh, and then we would start either on a nine-mile or a 13-mile run around uh, you know, movement around uh, Hunter Army Airfield. And about every two or three uh, miles, there would be some type of stakes, you know, whether it was um, you know, rig, rig a bridge for explosive, push, start a deuce and a half. And I remember what you're talking about. That day was push this C-130 off the, air, you know, the, the apron. And, uh, and, and again, you could, they're on a tripod. So if you get enough, enough guys up there to, and get it rocking, you can actually get that thing moving. And uh, what, what was scaring us is the, how could we get it to stop? But yeah, that was, that was <laughs> yeah, amazing. Was that but anyway, <laughs> but, yeah, but, uh, one thing is the best time of my life. And what you nailed it, the stuff that came out of that was to, to again, advance the capabilities of the soft forces soft forces uh going going forward and uh the, just the, the idea again think about the assault force the number of people that colonel burr said going into that to get ready to take down that embassy to rescue those hostages and fight their way out helicopter at a time in the stadium next door to the embassy then in our Too airfield good. two armored divisions across the highway and we had about 150 who was holding that airfield to extract everybody out, and still True. the mission it, was launched. But for a bit of bad luck, Dang I mean, it. we we damn near pulled that off. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, sure did. Hey, sorry, Major. We're going to wrap up. Uh, uh, we got some other stuff on the show we got to get to. Again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we'll we'll get with you again. It's always a pleasure, Sergeant Major. Thank you. The other night, I went to a, a dinner with a Six Star TB. And they asked me, what was the what was the best thing you ever did? And it was easy. It was Eagle Claw. I mean, it was the best and the most significant probably contribution that uh, in my 40 years. So I appreciate the opportunity. Right. All right, my friend. Thank you so much again. All right. Take care. Have, Have a good you. evening, sir. Out. We'll be right back. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. 
like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Here's your host, General Grange. Well, that was quite the show. And we've covered the terrain from World War II until Eagle Claw with two members that served in the task force to rescue our hostages in Iran. We've derived a number of lessons from the stories of POWs and from those who would rescue them. This is the only place you'll get to hear things like this, and we plan to continue this in the future. We've got many more things involved in our depiction of military history, current events, and issues for veterans. Here on the Veterans Broadcast Network, on this show, Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, hosted by Brigadier General Retired David Grange. Thank you, Ranger Doug. Ranger Buddy, appreciate it. I just want everyone to know the next show, we're going to continue with our POW MIA subject, and we're going to include things like some other hostage rescue operations, SEER training, and transition from active duty as a POW to civilian life. Two other quick points. Again, this show brings out the fifth stanza of the Ranger Creed, which partly says, I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. Closing, let's raise our glass, toast to honor America's POW MIAs, to the success of our efforts to rescue and account for them, and to the safety of all our now serving armed forces for our nation. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of the Veterans Radio Hour. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Veterans Radio Hour name and all forms and abbreviations are the property of its owner, and its use does not imply endorsement or of opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll Call. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives.